The following sermon is by Dr. Chuck Register, Interim Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. Take your Bible in hand and come with me in the Old Testament to the 121st Psalm. The 121st Psalm. You might remember last Sunday morning I had shared with you that I would be uh, delivering a message entitled uh, Lifestyles of a Godly Patriarch. Um, I had hoped to do that. I had wished to do that. But as I uh, reflected on that sermon in the middle of the week, I realized that it would be at least a two-part message. Uh, and you would not want to go through a two-part message after I just finished Romans 12, which was at least a two-part message. And so today, uh, we'll get to life traits of a godly patriarch later in our preaching plan. But today, I want to share with you a message entitled, Where Do You Turn When There's Nowhere Else to Turn? It's a message that I think each of us need in life in various points of our valley journey. Where do you turn when there's nowhere else to turn? Psalm 21, we'll be reading that passage in a moment. Um, a few moments ago, you couldn't see it. Uh, Wallace leaned up and whispered to me. He said, I apologize for hugging you spontaneously in the baptistry. <laughs> Wallace, I'm still trying to get Charlene to hug me this morning. So brother, don't, <laughs> don't apologize. Never apologize for hugging your pastors. It's a way of affirmation. It's a way of letting them know that your brotherhood in Christ, your relationship with Christ is strong. It's an expression that all pastors that I know appreciate. So never hesitate to hug your pastor. I'll be in the vestibule after the service. If you want to stop by and hug me, uh, I'll receive all of those. And honey, you can get in line as well. I'll be glad to receive all of those hugs from you. Let's stand to read God's word. Psalm 121. I'll be reading aloud. You follow along, reading silently. Listen to these powerful words from the psalmist. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Join me as we pray. Father, thank you for such comforting words, knowing that you are always there when in life it seems there's nowhere else to turn. Father, we praise you that we can always turn to you. And we ask now that you would help us to understand this powerful, beautiful passage of Scripture, that it might become for us a daily reality in our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So where do you turn when there's nowhere else to turn? When the doctor comes into the examination room and he says to you, we've done all that we can do. We've tried the medications. 
we've tried the physical therapy, we've gone through the surgery or the chemotherapy, we've tried all of the experimental drugs that are on the market, we've done all that we can do. Where do you turn when there's nowhere else to turn? When your boss calls you into his office on a Friday afternoon, he looks you in the eye and says, you've been a wonderful employee and a gift to our organization, but we're downsizing. In our new organizational chart, your position will be eliminated. Where do you turn when there's nowhere else to turn? Where do you turn when you sit down at the breakfast table with a cup of coffee and a frozen waffle? Your spouse looks across the table and out of the blue, your spouse says, I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. Where do you turn when there's nowhere else to turn? That's the situation that the psalmist finds himself in Psalm 121. It is a hopeless situation he finds himself in. And in the midst of his hopeless situation, he gives us hope today. Because in life, ladies and gentlemen, if you have not experienced a hopeless situation in your past, there's at least one coming in your future. And so this morning, let's, let's focus on God's word. Let's let the psalmist share his testimony with us that, that when he had nowhere else to turn, he found one option that was the best option. Look with me at this hopeless situation the psalmist finds himself in. Verse 1, the psalmist writes, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from whence shall my help Come. The word help is such a powerful word in verse 1. It is a word in the Hebrew that means to save from certain destruction. The setting is this for the psalmist. The psalmist looks around in his life and all he sees is his enemy. He looks before himself and he sees his enemy. He looks behind himself and he sees his enemy. He looks to the left and to the right. As he does a 360 in his life, all he sees is his enemy, and he knows that his destruction is certain. And so he chooses a very powerful word in the Hebrew language to save from certain destruction. He is confident that if life continues on its present course, he will be destroyed. This setting reminds me of an activity my daughter and I used to enjoy every Saturday morning. When Tina, who is now about to turn 31, was four years of age, every Saturday morning, as Charlene and our son slumbered a little late on Saturday, Tina and I would awaken early. And we would race into the living room and we would get our pillows and our blanket and she would have her baby doll and we would lay down on the couch and we would spend the morning watching what? Westerns. No cartoons at my house. We wanted to see the Duke in all his glory. You have to love Westerns. Westerns have these hopeless scenes somewhere in the plot line. You know the scene. The, the settlers are heading west and they've, they've come under Indian attack and so they've circled the wagons and the Indians are hooping and hollering and circling on their ponies, that circle of wagons, and firing their flaming arrows and giving their war chants. 
That's where the psalmist finds himself in this passage of Scripture. You see, on Saturday morning, however, we knew that somewhere we would begin to hear the bugle play. We would hear the charge from the Calvary, and they would ride over the horizon and restore order, and the settlers would be victorious. The psalmist doesn't hear a bugle in this passage. He has no hope of the Calvary riding over the horizon He takes pen in hand and he says, in my life, I'm surrounded by my enemy. I'm facing certain destruction. Where do I turn when there's nowhere else to turn? Ladies and gentlemen, if that describes your life, you need to take courage this morning because I want you to know that our Heavenly Father is a master at dealing with hopeless situations. You look throughout Scripture and you see story after story after story that seemingly is hopeless. Let me share three with you quickly. From the book of Exodus, we find Moses before Pharaoh. They've gone through the ten plagues. The the Passover angel, the death angel, has already passed over. and, And Pharaoh has finally said to Moses, take the children of Israel and go. And and so Moses rounds up the children of Israel and they begin that trek out of Egypt. And, And you remember the point in the story where they come to the Red Sea and before them is that massive body of water and they look behind them and behind them they see the dust clouds of Pharaoh's chariots and Pharaoh's horsemen and Pharaoh's army. And it's a hopeless scene. As a matter of fact, the children of Israel are so hopeless, they begin to say to Moses, what, they they didn't have graves back in Egypt so we could die and be buried there? You had to bring us out into the wilderness to die? It's a hopeless situation. Think with me in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3, we we find those three strong, godly Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the story. Nebuchadnezzar uh, erects this golden statue of himself and he, he decrees that everyone when the music plays is to fall and worship him. And that golden statue, the music plays and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow and worship the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he calls them in and he says, all right, guys, I'm going to give you a second chance. If you'll, if you'll fall down and worship me when you hear the music play this second time, I'll forget your disobedience. The music plays a second time. You know the story. And those three Hebrew young men stand strong before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar brings them in. He's furious. He says to them, bow down and and worship me or I'm going to cast you into the fiery furnace. Those three boys look at that wicked king and they simply say to him, Our God is able to save us. But even if he chooses not to, we will not bow down and worship you. Nebuchadnezzar is so angry, you check the text when you go home this afternoon. He heats the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been heated before. And he binds Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in ropes. And we see them on the very edge of being cast into the fiery furnace. It is a hopeless situation for those three boys. One more story. Luke chapter 8. 
Luke chapter 8, we meet a loving father named Jairus. Jairus is a synagogue official. He's a Jewish official, but his 12-year-old daughter is ill. Jairus being a loving father, the text does not tell us, but we can conjecture. He, he has taken his daughter to every known physician of the city. They've tried everything to restore his daughter's health. And he is so desperate. And the situation is so hopeless that Jairus, a Jewish official, goes to Jesus. He goes to Jesus and he says, can, can you come and heal my daughter? I believe that you have the power in your touch to restore her health. You remember the story, don't you? Jesus is making his way to Jairus' house, but there's a crowd and the woman with the issue of blood comes and touches the hem of his garment and, and delays Jesus' journey. And, and as he finishes dealing with the woman with the issue of blood, someone comes to Jairus and says, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. What a hopeless situation. What a hopeless moment for a loving father. My daughter is dead. And so friend, if you're here this morning and there's an area in your life that seems hopeless, You've come to the right place because you've come to the right God this morning. He is a master at dealing with hopeless situations. In this hopeless situation, the psalmist discovers what I call a holy solution. Let's come back and let's see what the, what the psalmist does in the midst of this hopelessness and despair. I will lift my eyes to the mountains from whence shall my help come? And then he makes the most beautiful declaration, perhaps in all of the Old Testament. My help comes from the Lord. In any hopeless situation I face, in any hopeless situation you face, we should know in our heart our help comes from the Lord. And then the psalmist begins a beautiful description of this God we can turn to in the midst of our hopelessness. And he gives us several characteristics of this God that I want to point out to you. First of all, when, when we, in the midst of a hopeless situation, when we look to the Lord for the answer of our hopelessness, we find a God of power. Come back and look at the text, Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord. And, and here it comes. He describes him as a God of power. Who made heaven and earth? The psalmist says, in my hopelessness, I lift my eyes to the Lord. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. And he is a God of power. He speaks of his creative power. He made heaven and earth. In essence, the psalmist is saying, Wherever there is a moment of helplessness in your life, whatever that challenge is causing your hopelessness, God has the power to meet your challenge. And he does it by carrying us back to the first few days of creation where God takes his creative power and he speaks and, and the water and dry ground is separated and he speaks again and the fish begin to swim. He speaks again and his power is on display as the birds begin to fly in the sky. He speaks again and his power is for all to see as the animals begin to roam on the earth. He speaks and there's power from our Lord. 
And then the crescendo of his power on display in creation. He, he kneels and he fashions from the dust the formation, the figure of a man. And he breathes into the nostrils of that clay figure. And Adam rises from the dust. Oh, the power of God, the psalmist says. In the midst of my hopelessness, I look to the Lord. And when I look to the Lord, I see a God of power. Remember that story about Jairus a moment ago? Boy, we see the power of God on display at the end of that story, do we not? They come to Jairus and they say to Jairus, your child is, is dead. Don't bother the master. Jesus says, we're going to your house anyway. And, and Jesus gets to the house and he takes Peter, James, and John into the house with him. And he enters the room where that lifeless 12-year-old body is resting and Jesus displays the power of God. He speaks and that little girl sits up alive. He resurrects her dead body to life because he's a God of power. Friend, if he can resurrect a dead person back to life, what problem do you have that he does not have the power to handle? He's a God of power. The second thing I want you to see from this text, he's a God of perception. When we look to God in the midst of hopelessness, he's a God of perception. Come back and look with me. Verse 3, I, I don't want you to miss this. There's humor in verse 3. He, speaking of God, he will not allow your foot to slip. The word foot in the English text is literally translated, don't miss this, don't, don't giggle out loud. You can giggle internally, but don't giggle out loud. It, it literally means your big toe. God's word speaks of your big toe. The word slip means literally translated to wiggle. What's the psalmist saying? In the midst of your hopelessness, God is such a God of perception that you cannot wiggle your big toe without him knowing about it. Try it. Go ahead. Nobody's watching. Just wiggle your big toe. Our Lord, seated on his throne, he knows whether or not you wiggled it up or down or whether you wiggled it left to right. He's a God of perception. This powerful God knows everything that's happening in your life, even down to the wiggling of your big toe. He is such a perceptive God he knows exactly the challenge you are facing. You know what the psalmist is saying? The psalmist is saying, oops, is not in God's vocabulary. Whatever you're wrestling with, whatever's causing the hopelessness in your life, the Lord not only knows about it now, he knew about it before the problem even started in your life. And listen to me, he has the solution to solve your hopelessness before your hopelessness ever began. He's a God of perception. Doctor's office, we've done all that we can do. God saw that train coming in your life. L losing your job because the organization is downsizing. The father saw that coming way before you did. He's a God of perception. Third characteristic I want you to see. He, he's a God of power and he's a God of perception. The next thing I want you to see, he's a God of protection. Look with me, verses 5 through 7. 
The Lord is your keeper. The word keeper takes us to the agricultural environment of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the one who was the keeper of the vineyard protected his crop by planting hedgerows of thorn bushes around the crop he was trying to protect. And so if it was a crop of olives or a crop of dates, he, he would plant this, this hedgerow, if you will, of thorny bushes to keep animals out and to keep thieves out. The psalmist says, the Lord's your keeper. He's in the process in your life of planting hedgerows of thorns around you to protect you. But the most beautiful picture of protection is in the very next line. Look with me. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Here it is. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. What does that mean? How many of you here this morning are right-handed? Would you just lift your hand? Yeah, all of us normal people are right-handed. <laughs> How many lefties do we have in the room? Well, now that just explains a lot right there. <laughs> you missed your calling lefties by not pitching in the major leagues. You could have made millions. Most people are right-handed. In the Old Testament, when you went to battle, the right hand is your sword hand. The left hand is your shield hand. You, you go into battle and you, you have your shield to protect you, but the, the right hand is the offensive hand. The, the right hand is the hand that helps you win the battle. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? The Lord is your shade. He's your protection on your right hand, on your sword hand. In the midst of your hopelessness, when you face that challenge that is crushing you, you can still have an offensive weapon because the Lord is the shade on your right hand. Oh, wow. Now let's think about those stories that I told you at the very beginning of what we were uh, describing about hopelessness, this, this God of protection. Remember those stories? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The last time we mentioned them, they were standing on the precipice of the fiery furnace. It had been heated seven times. They've been bound with ropes. They're about to be cast into the fiery furnace. But God is the God of what? Protection. The scripture says the furnace is so hot that, that the strong men that are casting them into the furnace perish. But you remember the end of the story? Shadrach and Meshach, not only in Abednego, not only go down into the fiery furnace, when they come back out, Scripture says, not a hair on their head is singed, and they don't even smell like smoke. You ever sat by a campfire? It's impossible to be by flames and not smell like smoke unless you have a God of protection. A God who not only can protect you from the heat, he can protect you even from the smell of the flames. One other characteristic I want you to see about God this morning. In the midst of hopelessness, he's not only a God of power and perception and protection, but he's a God of preservation. Look with me, verses 7 and 8. The Lord will protect you from evil. He will keep your soul. 
the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and, what's the word, church? Forever. He's a God of preservation. It may seem hopeless to you. You may not see how in the world your challenge, your problem is going to end with a happy ending. But God is a God of preservation. The end of one last story. Moses, the children of Israel, are standing on the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army, his horsemen, his chariots are closing in. And the people began to grumble. There were not enough graves in Egypt that you would let us die there. You've brought us out into the wilderness to die. And in that hopelessness, our God of protection says, Moses, tell the people to move forward. And as the children of Israel in obedience to the Lord begin to move forward, they cross the Red Sea on dry ground. Our God is a God of protection. But that's not where the story stops, is it? When the children of Israel get across the Red Sea on dry ground, Pharaoh's army rushes in behind them, hot on their heels. The scripture says the water flows back. The army is crushed. And the children of Israel are preserved. He's the God of preservation. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know this morning that God preserves you and he preserves you forever that moment you trust Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He doesn't preserve you forever simply because you studied the Old Testament. He doesn't preserve you forever simply because you know that in a hopeless moment you can put your faith and trust in the Lord. He preserves you forever. He preserves your soul forever. He preserves your life forever. The moment you trust Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That's Wallace's testimony this morning to you from the baptistry. Are you facing hopelessness in your life? Our God's a God of power, a God of perception, a God of protection. And if we trust Christ as our Savior, he preserves our soul forever. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This morning, I want to give you an opportunity to come to Christ to trust him as your personal Lord and Savior, to ask the one who died for you at Calvary to forgive you of your sin, to come into your life as your Lord, your master, your Savior. Would you trust him today? Would you just acknowledge from the inner recesses of your heart, Lord, I am a sinful person. I believe that Jesus died for me. I turn away from my sin and I ask Jesus Christ to come into my life and take total control to make me the person he longs for me to be. I surrender my life to him. In that moment, he preserves your soul forever. Would you come?
This morning, perhaps you want to come to this altar and just kneel and pray and say, Lord, in the privacy of this prayer booth here at this altar, I, I want to lift up this hopeless area, this hopeless challenge that I have in my life. Help me to look to you and to trust you even in the midst of my hopelessness for you are the holy solution. Would you come? Maybe you're here and God is leading you to be a part of this church family even in the midst of this interim season. Would you come and just simply say, Chuck, my family and I, we want to plant our life in worship and service of the Lord here at Emmanuel. Would you come this morning? Father, I pray that you would speak to your children, that they would respond, that, Father, the one who needs Christ to preserve their soul for eternity would come to Jesus today. For those who need to come and kneel and pray because of the seeming hopeless situation in their life, lead them to come. To the family that needs to unite with the church, Lead them, Father, to come. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus, for his sake and for your glory. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Register, interim pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, visit us on the web at ebcraleigh.com.